okay, whatever church I speak in, the pulpit's always too low. I'm always just like this the whole time. Anyway, Ricardo asked me in the car on the way here, he said, oh, are, you, are you feeling nervous today? And I said, well, it's a funny one. Um, because this is my first, I've just finished my first half term of training to be a teacher. Um, and standing here talking to you is very different talking to a group of a room full of teenagers. There's no, there's no fear of pens flying across the room, chairs flying at me or anything like that. Um, but in another sense, it is, it is, it is, it is more nerve-wracking than that because as much as I, as much as I love physics, as much as I, as much as I love my subject, um, the kind of things that we'll talk about this morning are a lot, are a lot more important than that, ultimately. So let's pray before we start. Dear Father God, thank you so much that we can gather together here in your name, that we can um, meet around your word, we can sing praises to you, and we can study your word. Please help us, Lord, in the things I say and that the things we hear, that we will be obedient to you and that we would seek to live a life that glorifies you. Amen. Amen. Is the microphone okay or is it really reverberating? It's okay. Okay, good. Okay, so this week's a bit of an unusual week. Um, obviously, we're missing a lot of people due to Michael's wedding. So instead of continuing directly on in our study of Acts, um, we're going to take a little bit of a tangent. So when Kevin asked me to take over preaching this week, we discussed uh, what would be a good topic for the sermon. It seemed odd to continue the Acts series with so many people, so many members of our church family missing. Um, so what we decided to do is, you remember a few weeks ago, Nathan preached through Act 9 which is Paul's conversion, Paul's Damascus Road experience, the moment when Jesus met him on the road and turned his life around. And what we read in those chapters are Luke, the author of Acts, Luke's account of Paul's conversion. So we thought that an interesting sermon for this week then might be to hear Paul's account of Paul's conversion. Let's hear Paul's testimony in his own words. And Paul actually gives his testimony a few times in the book of Acts. Um, but the account that we're going to look at is in Acts 26. And the point of us studying this passage is not just to hear Paul give an account of how he came to salvation. It's also for us to see how Paul uses his testimony as a form of witness. We'll see this as we go through the passage. But what Paul's going to do in this portion of scripture is he's going to grasp the opportunity to preach the gospel. But he doesn't do it through a really dense theological sermon. He does it through his own testimony. And what I'm hoping we can do then is look at what Paul says here, look at how he structures his testimony, and use that to help us in our own lives to share our faith with the people around us. If you've got your Bibles, then turn to Acts 26, but hold your place there, because we're not going to read it just yet. Clearly, between Acts 9 and Acts 26, we're skipping over a lot of content. There's actually about 25 years of Paul's life that we're missing out in between, which is a huge chunk. So I'll summarize a bit of that now, and hopefully that'll lead us into what we're going to look at in chapter 26. We've seen Paul's conversion and his journey to Damascus in Acts 9. After that, Paul spends about three years in Arabia, and there's very little detail in the Bible about what he gets up to there in those three years. He later spends some time in his home city of Tarsus before coming to Antioch in Acts 11 with Barnabas. And it's from Antioch that Paul begins his three missionary journeys. And these are chronicled in Acts 13 to 20. These journeys see Paul traveling all over Asia Minor and Greece, preaching the gospel, planting churches, and writing letters to churches, many of which make up the New Testament that you're holding in front of you. After the conclusion of the missionary journeys, we get to Acts 21, 
And this is where we're going to go through Paul's story a bit more slowly. In Acts 21, Paul returns to Jerusalem and was actually just sort of minding his own business in the temple. There's no record he was preaching or doing anything controversial at this point. Um, but some Jews spotted him. And they stirred up a crowd saying that Paul was, he was anti-Jewish, he was defiling the temple, and there's an uproar. Paul is dragged out of the temple, a mob develops, beating Paul with the intention of killing him. And this riot is big enough that the Roman soldiers, they notice what's going on, they step in and they save Paul. Of course, the Romans, they don't really know what to do with him. This argument that he was in was all about a religious matter. So they couldn't just give him a beating and send him on his way. Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul had certain rights. So they bring him to the Sanhedrin, to the Jewish council for a trial in Acts 22. And this trial doesn't even conclude. It becomes such a farce and a riot that the soldiers again have to step in and remove Paul from the scene. Acts 23, the Romans receive news that there's a plot to kill Paul if he's brought back in front of the Sanhedrin again. The Romans in Jerusalem, they decide to send Paul elsewhere. They send him to the Roman governor Felix in Caesarea. And a letter accompanies Paul to Felix, stating that Paul has broken no laws worthy of death. He just has some issues with the Jews and their law. Um, you deal with them. Felix is barely interested in Paul's case. But to keep the Jews that he's governing at bay, he keeps Paul under house arrest for two years without really a proper trial. After being nearly beaten to death in Jerusalem, Paul is kept prisoner for two years without a proper Jewish or Roman trial. And that brings us to Acts 25, where Felix, he's moved on from being governor of Caesarea. He's been promoted elsewhere. And there's a new governor in town, this guy called Festus. Now Festus, he's inherited a tricky situation with Paul here. He has this guy, Paul, who's a Roman citizen by birthright, but he's in prison. And he has been for two years without a proper trial. And this is a huge miscarriage of Roman justice. However, he can't simply release Paul because of his fear of his Jewish subjects causing a riot. So he speaks to Paul. He offers Paul a chance to go back to Jerusalem to face trial. And Paul has no intention of going back to Jerusalem to face, to face any injustice there. So he employs his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar for trial. Paul chooses instead to bring his case to Emperor Nero in Rome. And this, sorry, and this was a request that Festus couldn't refuse. It was the right of any Roman citizen to have their trial heard in Rome. But this then leaves Festus in another tricky situation. He has to send Paul to Rome, but he doesn't even know what charge to send him there with. All of the unrest seems to just be with the Jewish religion. He doesn't really understand what the issue is. So luckily for Festus then, or so he thinks, this puppet king of the Jews that they have, Agrippa, turns up on the scene. And as he's a Jew, Festus believes Agrippa could provide some insight into what's going on, what charges to send Paul to Rome under. He organizes a trial. There's a huge amount of pomp and circumstance surrounding it. The Roman governor's attending, the Jewish king's attending, high-ranking military and officials from the city are there. This trial is going to be a huge event. You know what's interesting? Legally speaking, not that I'm an expert in law, but legally speaking, Paul was under no obligation to turn up or even speak a word to these people. Paul had appealed to Caesar. He'd appealed to Rome, and he had to be taken there. That was the law. There was no concern of his whether or not Festus had any charges to send along with him. 
Once he had appealed to Caesar, Paul couldn't be forced to stand trial before Festus or Agrippa. So Paul did not have to speak to these people. But he chooses to do so. He chooses to walk into the auditorium and put himself on trial before these people. Why? Why do that? Well, he does it because it's an opportunity to share the gospel. It's a chance to share the gospel with a Roman governor, the king of Israel, and all the high-ranking officials of the city. I mean, how many times do you get the chance to do something like that in your life? Paul, he puts his own rights and his comforts to one side, and he grabbed at the opportunity to share the gospel to a room full of people. And he does it simply through his own testimony. Let's read our passage then. Acts 26. It says this, starting at verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They've known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it's because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as, earnest, as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from, synagogue, um, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them. I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the gods. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent, and turn to God, and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am seeing nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. 
The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with him. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, they began saying to one another this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. To consider Paul's testimony then, I've split the passage up into five key phrases that Paul uses, and we'll spend a short time considering each one of them. The first key phrase is, I lived as a Pharisee. And it summarizes verses 4 to 11 of what Paul has to say. In these verses, Paul, he details what his life was like before he was saved. He was one of the strictest Jews, a Pharisee. Not only that, he was one of the most well-known and prominent Pharisees of the time. That's why he says, they've known for a long time and can, test and can testify about me. He's saying he was relatively famous within Judaism, even before his conversion to Christianity. At the very least, the Jews present would know who he was and know how zealous for Judaism he was. Paul was a zealous persecutor of the church. We've seen that well enough through Nathan's studies of Acts 9. Paul went from city to city, church to church, punishing believers and trying to force them to recant their faith. He was responsible, either in part or in whole, for imprisonments and executions of Christians. Notice verse 10. I cast my vote against them. Or in some translations, it might say, I gave my voice. But the literal meaning of the phrase in both cases is that Paul voted to have Christians killed. This is Paul before the Damascus Road. You know, he, he led something like, like a first century version, a first century Jewish version of the Spanish Inquisition. You know, forced conversions, persecutions, executions if you wouldn't recant. This, this was Paul's job before the Damascus Road. And why is Paul telling them this? Well, look at verse 9. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I too was convinced. Paul's making the people around him see that he used to be just like them. Once upon a time, I would have sat where you are now, is what he's telling his audience. You're just like I was. And this is such an important part of Paul's and our testimony. When we're giving our testimony to a non-believer, we want to make it clear to them that we used to be in exactly the same position that they are now. We weren't born Christians. We know exactly what it feels like to be lost, to be far from God. We too were convinced that we could go our own way, make our own rules, and not have to answer to God. Your testimony is the story of how you journeyed from a place far from God in rebellion against him to now being adopted into his family. Let people know how the story started. What was your life like before Christ? And obviously you don't need to go into the gory details of every sin you've ever committed, but it should be clear to who we're witnessing to that we were different to what we are now. Our priorities were different. Where we looked for meaning and for identity in our lives was different. 
The second key phrase in Paul's testimony is in verse 13. I saw a light. We studied Acts 9 a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to go through the Damascus Road experience in depth. Suffice to say, Paul sees a blinding light. It was a light from heaven and it blinds him for three days. Now, this is something I believe literally happened, but there's also a clear spiritual metaphor here too. Paul had been living in darkness, in spiritual darkness. He was stuck in a dead religion, focusing on trying to achieve salvation through adhering to the law. Paul would have thought he was already living in the light. He was a Pharisee. He was one of the strictest Jews of his time. He'd been educated under the top Pharisee of the previous generation, and he answered directly to the high priest in his work against the church. Paul knew the Old Testament inside out. He knew the law better than most people alive at the time. He was a deeply religious man. He was convinced he was living in the light. But of course, it was spiritual darkness. When Christ appears to him on the way to Damascus, his light penetrates the deepest part of Paul's heart and he realizes just how dark the life he was living was. He sees the hypocrisy of the self-righteous life of a Pharisee. He sees that his good works, his education, his reputation, they're not enough to save him. Knowledge of the, of the law, persecution of the church, working for the high priest, none of them were enough. And we would probably call what Paul experienced in this moment conviction. Conviction is the word that we would use to describe that moment when Paul was hit with the weight of his own sin. The moment that he saw how guilty he was before a holy God. And if you're a Christian, you've experienced that too. You probably didn't see a blinding light. You probably weren't blind for three days after your conversion. But at some point in your life, the Holy Spirit penetrated your heart. And all the things that you did in the dark were brought to the light. I experienced this about seven years ago. I'd had the gospel shared to me by Christians several times, but I was an atheist, and I hated their message. It was something I would argue about and block from my mind. I hated God, and I hated the message that Christians were preaching to me. I thought I could ignore it forever. But there was a moment in my life when the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin, when the dark things in my life were lit up for what they really were. And I saw clearly for the first time the level to which I'd fallen short of God. I'd fallen so far short of God's standards, but I'd pushed that fact aside for a long time. The reality of my own sin was something I chose not to think about and not to accept responsibility for, but just like Paul, I couldn't escape that forever. A light was shone upon it, and where once I was spiritually blind, I could now see. I was a sinner, and there was no way for me to reconcile with God by my own works. Something like this will have happened in your life too. And it's a big part of your testimony when you share it with others. We used to be going in one direction in life, but there was a moment or a period of time when we realized the way that we were going was wrong. There was a time in your life and in mine when we realized that we were on the wide road to hell and not the narrow road to heaven. The next key phrase within verse 14 to 18. Paul says, I heard a voice. Paul heard the voice of the Lord, who told him it was futile to continue fighting against him. Now, this is a hugely significant moment. So let's take some time to appreciate it. Until this point, this very moment on the Damascus Road, Paul believed firmly that Jesus was dead. 
and that the people continuing to follow him were a cult. Paul believed, in fact, he was certain that the resurrection of Christ was a lie spread by a crazy sect, and he wanted to stamp the lie and the sect out. That was his job. Paul knew that Jesus must be dead. But of course, what happened? Jesus appeared to Paul and spoke to him. All of a sudden, Paul can see and hear quite clearly that Jesus is alive. In this instance, Paul realized that Jesus had in fact been resurrected from the dead. He realized that Paul had not been persecuting some sect. He had been persecuting the resurrected Messiah. In verse 16 to 17, Christ gives Paul a radical new purpose. It's hard to overestimate how huge the transformation in Paul's life was as a result. Christ gave Paul the role of a servant and a witness to the Gentiles. So Paul was appointed as a servant, not a high-ranking Pharisee like he had been. He had been a man of some standing, a man of importance and respect. But now, after his conversion, he would take the role of a servant. Jesus takes the mighty and he brings them law. Paul had been passionate for the Jews and Judaism, but Christ flipped that on its head by sending him to the Gentiles to preach Christianity. Now imagine what that must have been like for Paul. Try and put yourself in his shoes for a minute. You're, a pas- you're passionate about Judaism. You hate this Jesus cult that's claiming he's alive. You're trying to protect the Jews and the Jewish religion from this cult. And then in a moment, you see and hear the Jesus that you thought was dead. And now instead of stamping out his cult, you're going to be his primary servant in not only spreading his teaching, but spreading it to the Gentiles, bringing non-Jews into the fold. And Paul was a Pharisee, one of the most strictest, one of the most nationalistic of Jews, and now he's part of this new sect. He's going to reach non-Jews with the life and salvation that the Jewish Messiah is offering them. Paul was a teacher of the law, but now he'll preach that Jesus is the only way to salvation and freedom, that the law is just dead works. I mean, what a turnaround. What a shift in priorities he experienced in the moment of his salvation. And that shift in priorities wasn't just reserved for Paul. It's for me and for you too. When we accepted Christ as our saviour, when we put our faith and our trust in him, when we were saved, our priorities flipped on their heads. No longer are we seeking to serve ourselves. Now we serve someone far higher than us. We serve Christ, who's seated at the right hand of God. No longer is the point of our lives just to accumulate material things and comforts here on earth. Now we live for a life after this one. Now we live to build up treasure in heaven, not on earth. And that's your testimony. You were going one way in life, but you were convicted of your sin. You put your faith and trust in Christ for salvation, and now you're going the other way. We're not doing our new life perfectly, just like Paul wasn't perfect after being saved, but our priorities have shifted 180 degrees. The goal we're aiming for is not the same one we used to aim for. Finally, I'm going to take the last two phrases and sort of treat them together. In verse 19, Paul tells Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And then in verse 22, I'm going to quote the King James here. He says, 
I continue unto this day. Paul obeyed Christ's command that he gave him that day. And he obeyed it whatever the cost would be. Like I said earlier, there's about 25 years between Paul's conversion and his testimony before Agrippa here in Acts 26. And in that time, he had been obedient to Christ. He traveled far and wide preaching the gospel, planting churches, and it almost cost him his life on several occasions. It caused him physical and emotional pain regularly, but he remained obedient to the call that Christ gave him on the road that day. And what an example for us to follow in our lives. It's an example that the Holy Spirit within us empowers us to follow, to live like Paul did in that respect, sacrificially, for the sake of the gospel. Paul said, I continue unto this day. His faith had a beginning on the road, and it continued on. After his salvation, he didn't just choose to settle down in Damascus and live quietly as a sort of closeted-off Christian. He grew in his faith, and he was increasingly bold in sharing the gospel and living for Christ as his life went on. Jesus transformed him there and then on the Damascus road, but he continued to transform him for the rest of his life after that. It wasn't job done at the point of salvation. When you give your testimony, don't stop at the moment you're saved. Tell people what God's been doing in your life since then, about your growth as a Christian, how you've got to know God more and more, the fact that you've got a living relationship with a resurrected Savior. Jesus isn't just some guy who may or may not have lived 2,000 years ago, or some guy who was a moral teacher but not God, or some guy who died and that was the end of him. He's the Messiah. He's the saviour of the world who defeated sin and death and you and I have an actual relationship with him. I have a living relationship with a living saviour, with a living saviour, sorry. And so do you. And that's powerful stuff. What's Agrippa's response to Paul's testimony? Verse 28, he says, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? He asks Paul if he really thinks he can persuade someone like Agrippa in such a short speech to reject everything he currently values and become a Christian like Paul. Just like that. Paul's response, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. He says, I don't care if you convert right here and now or if it takes years or decades, but I want to see everyone around me become a Christian like me. And that's what your testimony is all about. I pray to God that all who are listening become what I am. Our lives have been changed for all eternity by Jesus, if you're a Christian. When we give our testimony, all we're saying is, look at what I've experienced. Look at how Jesus changed my life. I want you to experience that too. That's all it is. Look what Jesus did to me. He can do it to you too. And that's your testimony in a nutshell. Festus and Agrippa, they both agree that Paul is innocent. And they would have set him free if he hadn't appealed to Rome, which is where he'll be sent next. Paul would continue on to Rome, continuing to obey the command Christ gave him on the Damascus road. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And he was on his way to the capital city of the Gentile world. And he'd preached the gospel to the people there too. 
This is our calling. To share our faith with those around us. To share our faith to the people of Silksworth. To share our faith to the people in South Shields where I live. And to keep going. Sharing our faith with people in the next place we go. And the next people that we meet. And in the next place. Continuing to grow in our faith. And serving God to the end. Our testimony as Christians are powerful tools in sharing the gospel. Testimony is how Paul chooses to engage with the possibly hundreds of leaders and officials that were in front of him, putting him on trial. Your testimony is a humble and down-to-earth way of reaching people with the gospel. You know, that's why we've used testimony time and time again here on a Sunday night for the outreach services. Your testimony doesn't try to intellectually debate someone into being saved. It doesn't make you sound like you're trying to be more intelligent than somebody else. You don't sound aloof when you're giving your testimony. All we want the people around us to know is that once upon a time, we were on the same path as them. The only difference between us and them is that we trusted Jesus. And he transformed our lives. And he continues to transform our lives. And now we're on an infinitely better path. I'm going to end with Psalm 34, verse 8, which says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And that's the long and the short of it. We've experienced the goodness of God. And our testimony asks others to taste and see that goodness too. If they do, they'll experience just how good the Lord is and what a blessing it is to take refuge in him. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father God, thank you for your words. Thank you for the book of Acts. Thank you for the example of Paul. Thank you that we can see in this passage Paul boldly proclaiming his faith to a room full of powerful people who held his life in the balance. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have that boldness. I know, Lord, that I'm, I'm guilty so often of not being bold in my witness for you. But I pray, Lord, this week that you help me and that you help the people in this room with me to be bold, to share our testimonies with the people that, that we meet in our lives. We've tasted and seen how good you are, Lord. I pray that you would help us to have the, to have the boldness and the compassion to share that with the people around us. Amen. Amen. Thank you.